Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. On today's episode, we respond to our previous guest interview in a roundtable discussion focused on power, prestige, and influence. Now, this discussion is a reflection both on the position of leadership within our denomination and the motivation for taking this position or declining said position. One of the highlights of our previous interview with Pastor David Rhodes was that he, in fact, chose to stay at his local church instead of taking what would have been perceived organizationally as a promotion. This choice was not popular with all who gathered within his congregation, but still he made the choice, one he does not regret making. If you missed his interview, be sure to give it a listen before listening to today's episode, as it'll give context for our discussion. Otherwise, would you join us as we have a roundtable discussion responding to Pastor Dave's story, as well as the topic of power, prestige, and influence. All on today's episode of the Gorilla Pastor Podcast. was that Christians could not have conversation with each other if they disagreed with one another. It's all about entering in to the textured presence of lived lives. And so the, the sanitation of it just broke for me. Like, church can't be sanitized. I always feel like I'm not what people think of when they think of a pastor. I went to school for youth ministry and have now figured out how to do like construction work. It's good, good stuff. The church is struggling and declining in ways that we've never experienced in the United States and Canada right now. We have to like allow ourselves to embrace new ways of being in a place. Insurgent revolutions, i.e. guerrilla warfare, is 20% bullets and 80% blessing the people. How do we be eternally faithful? Like literally, like how do we be faithful in a way today that in 20 years, people aren't going, he was evil. Why are we so afraid? We believe that God is at work in all places, in all people, at all times. That is amazing and that should give us hope. We are the Gorilla Pastors. Join us as we explore a world of ministry founded on subversive presence. Before we get to today's roundtable discussion, I would like to address the elephant in the room. In previous episodes, we have discussed at length the problems with the typical perception of what a pastor looks like. This middle-aged white man is a one-size-fits-all assumption when it comes to picturing a pastor in one's mind. We have also spent some time interviewing pastors who fit this mold perfectly, all while being the very thing we are critiquing. My co-hosts and I are all white men. We are approaching middle age, and if we tried hard enough, we would perfectly fit into this one-size-fits-all mold. If we played our cards right, There's even a chance that we would get these promotions, that we could pursue power, prestige, and influence through an institution. This fact is not lost on us in our discussion. 
And if you listen closely, you can hear the tension as we wrestle with our own lack of representation and diversity while discussing such a delicate topic. So without further ado, here's our conversation. So you listened to the episode, you heard Dave Rhodes' story, you were around when this happened. Were you actually at the district assembly when it happened? No, I was actually driving here. Oh, so you uh, weren't quite here yet. Yeah, I was, uh, I was supposed to be at the district assembly and on the drive to Washington with all our stuff, uh, we got snowed in in Wyoming for three days. Well, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, I'd love to get your response to sort of his story and explaining why he opted not to take the DS position. But then, if you feel so inclined, maybe explain a little bit about why that's significant or worthy of discussion, because it's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's uncommon. I'm not sure if we can even say that with, any, with no data, but what's your response and why was it a significant conversation? Yeah. It's it's a hard one because I will say it is it's it's there um from his perspective and his storytelling. I feel I felt it from him I felt it from coming onto the district and knowing we needed a good new DS. Um just because of people I knew on this district and stuff. Um and and it's it's a uh, I think it plays into so many other conversations is when a man doesn't <laughs> doesn't chase the career path and humbly stays back and feels and says no um, for all the reasons um, that are good and right and faithful. Um, but there's been a lot of people who have probably turned those right, faithful, good decisions down um, for what they would say is the call of the larger church that voted him in, you know. Uh, and so, so and, and, and for all the reasons why he turned it down are all the reasons why we needed him as a leader. Okay, and and that has that has those kind of people as leaders, and so it plays in, I think, into a power dynamic around so many issues in our society, in which the humility to not speak, to not go after power, to not take leadership positions, are all the reasons why also we need those kind of people to take those positions, <laughs> and so. It's 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 really difficult, um, and I don't, you know, I don't think to to over hyper sensationalize his ability to not take and say no to that position. In some way, also demonizes anyone who goes ahead and takes goes ahead and takes it. Um, and so I, it's just, it's, it's really, I think it's a very hard dis discussion. I, I think we need more leaders to actually step into positions that are going to listen. They're going to ask the why questions. So they're going to ask the, the supportive questions that are going to step back and put, and put others in power 
um, because whether you talk about any minority stepping into power and uh, it's only going to start by starting to put people into power. Um, and it may be little bits of power, but we've, it's got to start somewhere. And so, and man, and so there's, there's tension, there's tension in this whole conversation. Um, and if you bring it down to the white male, uh, the, it's really difficult because when does the white male who's learned humility through walks of life, who is sensitive to the discernment of the spirit and can lead subversively or upside down, if you will. And yet those are always going to be the people who turn down leadership positions. Uh, and again, those are the people we need in leadership positions. Um, and that's, that's, I think that's the tough tension that we're going to, that's going to, that we all, we, that we will all have to deal with at some point. We have organizational tendencies to see that position as a promotion and as something that folks would want to have, which doesn't necessarily, I mean, like you're saying, there's a lot of tension there, but I immediately went back to as a first time lead pastor, 28 years old, one of my board members was and this was a compliment and i i at first i was like why would you wish that evil on me <laughs> but basically they said one day you'll be a ds and god willing a gs i'm like oh my goodness please not, why would you even say that to me but there was just sort of this understanding that if you do a good job you get promoted and that's you know that's a good thing because that's what corporate america does you continue to move up the ladder and that's a sign of doing good work but that was part of what was so fascinating about that conversation for me is that that's essentially the framework I was given both as just a, a kid growing up in the Nazarene church, but then also, you know, as an intern and then going to school and understanding that this is how that sort of a thing works. And sure, I, I totally appreciate what you're saying. Those that don't want the power, those that want to be good listeners should be the people in those positions of of leadership. But there's another side of this conversation that I thought was super important to have, and that had to do with just the tendency to want influence, to want to, you know, be the dominant voice in culture and to strive for power, which, it, you know, is rooted in a lot of the history of how evangelicalism has dealt with its neighbors, which ties in with our whole being aware of our neighborhood subversive presence thing. But what was your response to the conversation, Fasani? What did you think? Yeah, the, uh, David was not the first large church pastor that I know of that um, denied that position when it was offered to him. And so I actually have, a, a, through my sort of ministerial career, if you will, have ministered under more than one. And if you add Dave to that, that it would be three people that I've known that have been, quote unquote, promoted to DS, but didn't accept that promotion. Um, and so I just you know want to add to the conversation that not accepting that promotion, and I'm granted I'm using that term even though it's one that feels a little icky and and has its own set of problems, but I'm going to use it nonetheless because organizationally that I think that registers as true. I don't think every scenario of 
um, denying that promotion is altruistic and healthy. As a matter of fact, one of those cases, the person told me specifically that they didn't accept that position as DS because they actually maintained more power as the senior pastor of one of our flagship churches. Right. And so, so you, we need to tease out in this conversation the difference between the threads of an appetite for power, prestige and influence, and the structural problems that either promote or don't promote the, that sort of tendency to desire power, prestige and influence. Right. Because you could actually maintain what looks as a demotion or a, you know, a status maintaining the same and actually it sort of uh affirm that that, that that's a problematic that you're dealing with right like you you crave the power and you like to sit in the big swivel chair in your big office in your senior pastor position so so it's 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 just important to to acknowledge that a each of these cases is different b the entire system itself is not broken because this one thing called you know escalating the sort of, you know, the, the chains of power is always the same situation and always an, an unhealthy scenario. And lastly, that there are cases where people take those positions of leadership, as Brian acknowledged up front, that do embody and employ, for lack of a better term, the fruits of the spirit, which are exactly the kinds of people that we need in those positions to affect the kind of change that is necessary for both our organization to be healthy, but for the kingdom of God to continue to break in through the channels that we've established um, in our tribe. Um, so th those are just critical nuances, I think, to acknowledge. As I say that, I do want to, 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 to point out one problem that seems to be ever-present. And that is some, the set of assumptions that we come to um, valuating each of these positions. So it, 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 here's what I mean. If you're the pa senior pastor is generally just below DS in terms of power, prestige, and influence. That's itself a problematic assumption because that's not necessarily the case. But even more um, insidious than that, is that there are different tiers of senior pastoring and those correlate with size of church. So it is a promotion to go from one church of a smaller size to a church of a larger size, right? You acquire more power, definitely more prestige and more influence denominationally if nowhere else, right? And, and, and then of course you, you can work sort of another rung down. If you're an associate, you are of yet a lower position. And, and on right on down to children's pastor or, or, or whatever, right? And so we have these tiers, these operative tiers of power and influence. And I think the assumptions that inform those have to be questioned, right? And I think what Dave Rhodes does, right, is he employs the type of person, the type of follower of Jesus that we would love to see continue to climb, not because we want to see them at the top, but because we all sort of, uh, we all deeply know that there's a problem in the assumptions we're holding and we would love for somebody to talk, to, to sort of poke holes in it, right? Like it's, it's like the, it's the, the, the assumptions are tenuous, but they continue on because nobody's questioning them. And we know that when we hear a story like Dave's, like he inherently questions them, right? He, 
is at the top of one of those rungs and is still this like, like immensely humble person that is when I sit with at, you know, over a lunch or something would rather like absorb some kind of like my story far before his own or, or than telling his own, you know what I mean? And so I, I, I like how Dave sort of questions the assumptions that are, that are operating here. Um, though I don't think it's some kind of like template for how to solve the problem is just all leaders say no to the next promotional position or something like that, you know? Yeah, I'm not sure we're prepared to even offer solutions, but I think step one that you're sort of teasing out is acknowledging that that is an issue that needs to be addressed in some way, that we need to acknowledge that it's the case instead of just assume this is the way it should be, which is sort of the thread of our entire podcast so far is let's just not assume that these are the best ways forward for X, Y, Z. Let's consider maybe alternative ways of thinking or looking at, at things. But while you were talking, uh, it was really interesting to me because even at just a, uh, I don't know, para-organizational, para-denominational level, I've heard a lot of uh, younger pastors or pastors of smaller churches just begrudge the, the fact that they go to these seminars, they go to conferences, they try to learn how to be better, you know, parish preachers or whatever the case may be. And everyone that leads a workshop, everyone that's speaking, everyone that's doing anything at any one of these conferences, you know, even just conferences for pastors, pastors at a church of minimum, you know, 5,000 people or something like that. And there was this talk of a, what if we resourced and did a small church, small church conference? And because of that kind of disparity between, you know, who has the money or influence to pull these things off, it was an interesting conversation to see. Because some of the assumptions that were aired, some of the grievances that were aired were, yeah, that's great. Like you have this idea about how to preach, but I don't think that works in my situation. Uh, my average size church is 50 people on a Sunday. I could employ a whole bunch of the tactics that you say I should employ that work for your congregation, your sanctuary that seats a thousand people, but it's not even the same conversation that I'm having. Because once I'm done preaching, I actually go sit in the back, in the foyer, in the Fellowship Hall and hear directly from my congregants after I've delivered the message that Sunday morning. So there was just so many levels to this that that had me chewing on it. I've read books, I've looked at all sorts of things. Once you're sitting in the seat, right, it, the, at whatever rung that is, once you're the lead pastor, there are so many well-intentioned, you know, mentoring or advice-giving books or seminars or things. It was like, I, it started to... I think this is quoting Ryan from our own podcast. So that's a little, that's awkward. It broke, <laughs> it broke for me. Like, oh, that's great. Like I love some of the books that we get handed and, and some of the things that they give pastors for the first time. But you know, some of the things that it says in is like, make sure to tell your secretary to not give out your personal cell phone number to everybody because you don't want 300 people calling you 24 seven. Like if I had a secretary, I'll, I'm going to make a mental note of that. Thanks, sir. Yeah, the whole the whole conversation though revolves around what is valuable. So I think the the for us especially the the concern is why did someone take the DS position versus why they didn't? It's all about what they value. What is the most important thing? What are they trying to accomplish? And it seems like maybe the the pastor that said no to the DS position was ultimately wanting more. 
people that that they could influence? Was that the assumption, or is there more to that you can share, or no? Um, I I pressed him on this. Um, yes, and I used the pronoun he because it was a <laughs> a male. Um, I'm not going to hide that, but I'm also not going to divulge his his name. But he, I pressed him on this because it just fascinated me that it was actually this one I'm thinking of was offered it two or three times, as a matter of fact. Anyhow, um, and he said that he had more latitude in ministry, I think were his terms, at that level um, than if he was to promote to DS, right? And so while not like entirely fishy, like we could interpret those words however we want, I, I think there was a spirit of... Um, of desiring to maintain a relationship close to the people, right? Like I, I'm doing ministry at this level. I can't conceive of it as an administrator, right? And so, and that's always, that's always stuck with me, right? Because that, like to not dig any further than that, but that alone resonates with me because if there, if ministry is anything, like it's a connection to the people. The question I have though, having you know been years in the ministry since then, is do the system does the system we have set up by within which this sort of promotional idea, this career promotional career escalation idea operates, does it allow people in leadership at any level to maintain a closeness to the people? Or does it inherently separate and distinguish leader from follower, teacher from learner, you know, discipler from discipled, expert from novice. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Right? Like so the so the same system that cre- that that supports and informs the assumptions of the sort like the thing we're naming about kind of es- career escalation for pastors is I believe problematic in what it does between leaders and participants. Right? So now the person that's the career expert that's working to escalate is sort of, you know, distinguished from the collective. And right, then that's an interesting trail to follow because I think there's something in, not something, there's a large sort of pillar in, um, in guerrilla ministry, guerrilla pastoring that wants to, that wants to move away from that. Some of those distinctions, which I think are inherently critical of this previous system that we're talking about right yeah it just it makes me think of the intention or the motivation that i think is pre-baked in very subtly uh foundational to how we have been taught to evangelize how we've been taught to interact with our culture how we equate certain cultural issues with with being theological issues because they inform how we have influence or control over x y or z but I don't know. It, it also makes me think if there is a whole lot of hope for for getting the the f- folks that bear the fruit of the Spirit into the positions they need to be in. Like, is there something inherently problematic with just having an organization that so closely mirrors corporate America? I mean, I don't, I don't know. That that sounds like a Brian question, though. No, I. I think I just there's there's just there's too much there's there's too many things because play the other side of that you know um 
you get asked to go teach a seminar. Is that because it's, it's not because we're big church pastors, right? I but do you turn it down because you're a white dude? Do I turn it down? Yeah. I've, oh, I've never been asked to teach a seminar. <laughs> so that's hard to, that's hard to you've hypothesize. Never, you've never been asked around your book or anything to teach a seminar. I taught like a workshop uh, at, at M19. Um, so I was one of like, I don't know how many. So I did not turn it down. I guess if that's, I I, yeah, I did not turn it down. You're right. Yeah, no, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying, how do you, de how do you deal with that, that tension? Because someone could say, someone could say you, you got asked to do the workshop because you have a beard. I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, <laughs> well, it might've because it was about being a millennial. So I definitely looked like a millennial and that's, yeah. uh, that's part of it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, to downplay the tensions of power that are, that exist. I, I would almost say, say this, that, but the tension of the discernment of, of that power is, is really what we're talking about. So if we make this whole podcast about power dynamics of being a Nazarene pastor in promotion, no one wants to listen to that, right? So if, but if we bring it down into the, except for some other pastors, right? But if we bring it down into the neighborhood, how does this play out as far as the role of the church or the presence of Christ, the body of Christ in a neighborhood? And it, the, same, the same things have to continue to be discussed is what's our role? What are we going to turn down? Because you're going to play a you're going to play a different role in that neighborhood if you're a church of five thousand than if you're a church of ten. Uh, I I know that when I go to some of the nonprofits in my neighborhood and I start talking as a representative of the church about participating in what they're doing, they ask how many volunteers can you come with? Yeah, and I say oh maybe five three? <laughs> yeah three <laughs> my kids and i <laughs> you know uh, and they and then they just kind of go they kind of they kind of brush me off uh there's not i can't offer finances because i don't have a big enough base and i can't offer a lot of volunteerism um and so i have to find now new ways of being involved in what they're doing because i do not hold the keys to the resources that they need of, of time and money um uh so i but at the same time there's got to be a way of even uh of, of present because because again if it's just about the issue of power and when to take it or turn it down then then i mean if if i've walked a journey through death and my neighbor is experiencing for the first time death do I walk away because I don't want to be the one speaking? Or is the discernment actually speaking about my experience and walk through death and grief and, and, and through it? it? It seemed to me it would be the opposite of to, to hold back. But that's the thing is we, when we become issue centered, we don't know how to hold tension. And I think that is, if there's anything we can learn from this, it's 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 how to discern in the midst of of tension and and i don't know because power in the neighborhood is real 
It's real. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're the church or who, you know, there's power players in the neighborhood. Even when we talk about doing neighborhood exegesis or ethnography, we talk about finding out who the power players are within economics, uh, within the kind of civic life, um, you know, who are the PTA leaders and, and the real social movers. And then there's always, I mean, there's a guy in our neighborhood, uh, uh, guy that's been at least on the streets for 10 years since 12 years since I've been here but he, you he is the spokesman for at least the Ballard uh kind of group um and he's charismatic guy he'll speak but he'll speak somewhat philo philosophically about stuff but he can he can talk not only about the homeless community but also um he can speak to them um and uh because he's a part of them and so there's power players in every dynamics, and when do they speak and not speak? I mean, that's really what we're talking about. Well, I don't think the influence itself, right? Like being influential is the inherent evil here, right? It's the it's maybe to to paraphrase Jesus in a similar like the the love of power, the love of influence, right? Maybe that's the because this is what I'm playing out in my head as I hear you talk. So you can y'all can both tell me if I'm way off in the weeds. The what was beautiful about spending time with David. Pastor Dave Rhodes was known to me first off because he, this is word on the street. So, like, Pastor Dave, if you're listening, please forgive me. Oh, he's got the biggest church on the district. That's like how I knew him, number one, right? That's how I heard about him. That was my introduction to him. However, I'm sitting with him in this restaurant, and the person waiting on us just knows him as that nice guy, Dave, who comes in here a lot. And then after they talk, he's like, oh, you're a pastor. That's interesting. So instead of front-loading the conversation or the relationship by saying, buy my book, listen to my podcast, come to hear me speak, which is sort of the archetype that a lot of evangelical churches are trying to create for their pastors is, do you have this? Do you have that? We need to maximize influence. We need to make sure we leverage as much power as possible. Dave is known first and foremost by just being Dave. Does that help weed it out? Is that, is that maybe what we're, we're touching on here? Is that Brian, you're just known as the dude that has the two teenage boys that, yada, right? Like, you're just part of the neighborhood first and foremost. And then eventually, after a relationship is established, oh, you're a pastor? Can I talk to you about theological things? Like, is that how we check ourselves uh, at the door, check the ego at the door, so to speak, is, is uh, be invited instead of coercing folks to talk to us about stuff? Yeah, I, I think that I think that's a start. I think I think I think I think being aware of power dynamics is an important thing, um, and understanding privilege is an important thing um, because again, it allows me to then to discern well. Uh, I think <laughs> I mean it, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't. Uh, demand it it doesn't make me discern well but it it, it, it oh, some some well-rounded so i again i'm not uh yeah and but so i yeah i do i think that's a good start um uh what do you think ryan yeah. you just meeting people handing out business cards that say you're a pastor farmer author all of your accolades <laughs> <laughs> no but i've i have this thing bouncing around in my head and I don't know if it like pushes back on Brian <laughs> or affirms. Well, let's hear it. Yeah, let me let me throw this into the mix. Because as soon as we started into this conversation, this this 
this came to mind, and I wasn't sure if it ever fit, but I'm going to throw it out. Tell me what you guys think. Have you ever heard of the Zapatista Liberation Army of Mexico? Or, I mean, they, they go by the Zapatistas. It's a revolutionary insurgent army in Chiapas, Mexico, which is like the county or the state, the southernmost state in Mexico. Anyhow, I mean, they are what you would likely imagine when I when I say like, you know, a radical left, far left insurgent group. I mean, what you're picturing is probably not inaccurate. And they they stand for certain radical principles that some of us are sort of mildly aware of, but we've all heard in word, right? in name, like they're anti-imperialistic, they're anti-colonial, they're anti-capitalistic, and on and on and on. Far left. Radical. They have had a profound influence on the people in southern Mexico. As far as I've read, just out of pure curiosity, I've sort of followed the rabbit trail of learning about this group. They've had a profound influence on the people, right? They've lowered the rates of poverty. They've increased the rates of access to nutritious foods and et cetera, et cetera. Anyhow. Well, they, I mean, if that, that like undermines so much of what we understand as just sort of the American lifestyle, just off the top, they're, they're, like there's no hiding that. Right? They, you might say they are anti-American. If by American, we mean a certain type of like, middle-class ideological existence. All the interviews that I've seen have been with one Zapatista representative who goes by Subcomandante Marcos. And he is this profoundly and like astonishingly brilliant and articulate spokesperson. Right? So you think of this insurgent group and you think this sort of ragtag people that dress like with clothes all from the thrift store some of it matching some of it not they've got green beret kind of style hats and stuff and then you get this this guy and you're thinking my assumption is these guys are uneducated and they're warlords or something like that and then this representative gets up and he's like oh my gosh i feel like i'm listening to my political philosophy professor from college like this guy is brilliant subcomandante marcos never takes off his ski mask no matter who's interviewing him, right? He always, like, picture it. Ski mask, eye holes, mouth hole, that's it. He's like on, like, like the equivalent of CNN in Mexico or whatever. Someone's running a 60 Minutes, I think, like, runs a piece on Zapatistas. He's in there getting interviewed with his black ski mask on, right? Guy with a three-piece suit interviewing him, ski mask. Doesn't matter, right? It. You talk to anybody about Zapatistas, they're not talking about, like anti-capitalism. They want to know why Marcos won't take off his ski mask. <laughs> right, like these guys are asking questions that undermine the entire developing world, the entire philosophy that is the bedrock for American lifestyle. And you talk to some college kid that listened in his political political philosophy class about the Zapatista movement in Mexico, and he wants to know why Marcos has a ski mask on. Like we cannot get past why the spokesperson has a hidden identity. So my question is, and this is bouncing around my head, my question is, what is it that we are obsessed about in terms of leadership that necessitates identity? Right? 
Like why? Like when we, when we have a hero, that hero needs a face. When we have a leader, that leader needs a face. When we have, when there's power and prestige and there's systems that support these positions of power and prestige, it's like we have in mind what it should look like for somebody to fill that position. You know what I mean? And I'm wondering how that intersects with the way we structure our organizations and the things that are desired, the positions that are desirable in those organizations. Right. And I, and I believe not that we are, you know, you know, guerrilla pastors are necessarily Zapatistas, but there's something about the mask wearing that I think is consistent with what we're talking about when it relates to relationships with power and discerning power in neighborhoods and being a subversive guerrilla presence for the kingdom in those neighborhoods. And I don't know, like, I, I don't know yet what that is, but I know that that's, that's humming in the same, with the same vibration, you know, as, as some of our other concerns. Right. And so what, how does that translate? Like what's the mask wearing in terms of on the ground, good ministry? Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's a really long conversation <laughs> to respond to. I, I can just say two things off the top of my head. Uh, the counterpoint to that is, you know, not mask wearing it. I, that's just what I see. That, that's why gorilla was such a provocative name for me because the opposite is name recognition, uh, mega churches, right? Mega churches with pastors that everyone knows because of all of the things that they have. And so you know, it's less about the fruits of the spirit and more about how many book sales they got, whether they faked them or not, whether their church bought all the books or, or not, and then just handed them out. But secondarily, the mask wearing thing, and I, I don't really know, I, I feel like I hear threads of this in stories of some of the pastors uh, we've interviewed on this podcast so far, and in another podcast I've spent time in. Once, once a person, uh, once an entity is known by the work that they've done, right, there's something, and it's not because that person's name, it's not because they've seen their face on TV or on social media, it's simply a, hey, this happened in the neighborhood, and I know about that entity organization, whether they're a church or not. There's something to be said about about the power of just actual embodiment of kingdom work that I think could be seen as maybe some sort of mask wearing uh, way forward in ministry. Uh, but yeah, that's my initial response. A very un undeveloped uh, thought. That's just an initial response. But what do you think, uh, Wardlaw? No, I think I think that's the I think it's the essence of subversive ministry in so many ways. Uh, I think the highest compliment of work would and leadership, to be honest, uh, would be if um, whatever it may be a, a church, a business, uh, a neighborhood ministry, um, ministry or nonprofit. If it can be run and it's known for the work they do, but no one knows who runs it, that's, I think that's one of the highest compliments uh, possible, I think, and, and testament to leadership in many ways, uh, team, uh, and very much, very much because no one knows who's doing the work because so many are, um, so many are embodying it. And so the, the identity becomes the, the actual work that's being done. Um, instead of a person i um but yeah but uh but i think in the same way that there's um 
and and in the same way that everyone gets fixated on why the guy won't take off his ski masks, uh, I would say a huge part of our population needs someone to follow, mm. needs a shepherd. Um, and whether that philosophically, theoretically, that's right, I, I think, <laughs> unfortunately, I think that's true. Uh, um, yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe I'm. Maybe that's too pessimistic of of, of culture. But um, yeah, no. I think it's. I think it's a brilliant, right? I think it's a brilliant um, example, and uh, and that can that can be picked apart in so many different ways uh, for that. We we live in Seattle. Maybe this is where we end it. The whole whether we need shepherding or whether we need to follow something. Who isn't talking about the Mariners right now? Like, just sports fandom is a whole other segment to this whole influence, right? Like, this prestige thing that we're talking about and how folks literally... I mean, there are places in the world, sports, uh, sporting events in the world, where they have to bring armed militia almost to keep fans from tearing each other apart over the color of a jersey. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm a little overly cynical as well, but I do think there's something to that about something needs to be followed, something, someone. So I don't know. You have to find your identity somewhere that clearly defines who's on your team and who's not. Yeah, we've joked around about how many supposedly lifelong Mariners fans are coming out right now. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's got a jersey and everyone's been a fan for 20 years or whatever, you know. Sub Subcultures within subcultures right there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in and... Uh, we 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 all follow. How, what do they? I can't remember sociologically what they say is a percentage of the population that follow rather than uh, actually lead. Even sometimes when we actually think we're making our own decision, we're we're following. Um, you so. know, there, there's a there's a critical piece here that uh, Brian brought up early. It's kind of hovering in the background, but I think. It's maybe a way to like, uh, it's something to mention towards the end as a segue to further discussions because it leans on multiple resources that we have in our tradition um, that are at the very least part of the solution to some of the power problem. And Brian brought up the importance of the discernment process and the discernment in, in power and in places of power and sometimes in resistance to power or in the acceptance of leadership and power positions, right? And I mean, we, we are people of discernment, which in short is just listening to the, the active voice of God. And we're also people historically that don't think that that ought to happen alone. Like there's no such thing as discernment in isolation. There's only communal discernment affirmed in the particular or in an, in an individual. And you know, so I'm wondering here if part of navigating some of these harder kind of tensions of power and privilege, if we, we, we need to learn, lean harder into our processes of discernment, Right. Like when we go into a decision making process already with a preconceived notion of what the answer is or the conclusion is or the person that ought to be promoted is, we have subverted unhealthfully the discernment process. And I'm wondering how we <laughs> how we how we make discernment great again. Oh, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> OK, 
<laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't help it. But I'm wondering how how we take discernment seriously again, right? Communal, corporate discernment that takes energy, effort, and time, right? Um, which, of course, implicitly demands holding tension over time, right, Brian? Um, yeah, and I and it's risky. Right, because that allows for an outcome that some some of us, one of us, or maybe all of us didn't expect or want. Right. And I think that's the open endedness of discernment as it relates with power that's both dangerous and hopeful. Yeah, man, that is that is that is good. And that is you we could do episodes and episodes on discernment. But if discernment is asking the right questions, right, so that you can process then it's f figuring out what the right questions are, you know what I mean? And it's going to be asking the questions of the powerful and the, and the not powerful, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, asking the questions of the neighbor who's going through grief, what do they need rather mm -hmm. than telling them what they need, you know, those kind of things. So those, the question asking, I think is it, it, you're, you're exactly right. And that's where uh, asking questions of, the people in, of color in our neighborhoods, you know, and the people in the margins. Uh, so I think all those, um, those are good. If discernment is asking the right questions so you can process, then what are the right questions? This line Brian Wardlaw shared with us is at the heart of what drives this podcast. We know that something is broken, but we're not exactly sure how to fix it. This podcast is an embodiment of a journey of discernment. Our goal is to ask the right questions. Sometimes we ask these questions of one another. Other times you have heard us ask these questions of pastors practicing subversive presence, so-called guerrilla pastors. But most recently you have heard us ask these questions of more traditional Sunday morning pastors. We have one more of these conversations in our next episode. So stay tuned, and while you do, would you consider rate, reviewing, and subscribing our podcast so others might discover it as well. Until next time, I'm your host Josiah, and this has been the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. <laughs>